Good morning, good morning. Welcome to Ethos. My name's Dave, and if you're new, uh, so great to see you, great to be together. If you're joining us online, honored that you're with us this morning. This is only our seventh or eighth week to be back in person, and so it's fun. You know, every Sunday, there's people that I haven't seen in a year or so that are, that are back, and it's great getting to, to see your faces, great getting to be together, getting to open the Word. Um, together. Um, hopefully you're having a great morning. Um, wherever it is that you're, you're joining us from, whether you've been a part of our church for a long time or you're, you're new, we're so honored um, to get to be together. I want to invite you to get out your Bibles and to open up to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, this, this morning we're going to be looking at a lot of different scriptures, but Matthew chapter 7 is just kind of the, the, the framework. It's the, it's the place where I'm, my, I'm hedging my bets this morning. And you know, this may sound like an obvious statement, but I wholeheartedly believe that Jesus is a truth teller and that everything he says is, is true. And it's not always easy to understand. It's not always easy to live into, but everything that he puts on the table is a true thing. If, if we'll receive it, if we'll step into it. And I love this moment in Matthew chapter seven because Jesus, he makes this promise about what's on the table for anybody that is humble and hungry and willing to like come to God on God's terms for God himself. And so I'm not sure what it is that you came here looking for this morning, you know, but over the next several weeks as a church family, we're just gonna really practically be, be wrestling with what does it look like to be a follower of Jesus? Not just someone who made a decision one time, not somebody that just joined a church, not somebody that's just trying to, to manage their morality or their behavior, cuss a little less, drink a little less, be a little more tame. You know, it's like, no, like what does it look like to be a person filled with the Holy Spirit, living, walking under the reign and rule of King Jesus, like right here, and right now, and that's what we're gonna be digging into over the next several weeks together at least. But this, this morning, um, I want us to wrestle with that reality from uh, one particular perspective. And before we even get to that, I wanna remind us of this thing that Jesus says in Matthew chapter seven. And here's the context. Jesus, he's talking to a group of people that are weary by life. Nothing has worked the way that they thought it would. Their marriage hasn't worked the way they thought it would. Their work hasn't worked out the way they thought it would. Their attempts at religion has not worked out the way that they thought it would. They're beat up, they're, they're worn down, they're exhausted, they're not sure which way to go. Jesus begins to breathe life into these weary, exhausted fellow travelers. Maybe you understand their story a little bit. But I love what he says to them in Matthew chapter seven. Look at this, Matthew chapter seven, starting in verse seven. He said, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find Knock and the door will be open to you. Listen to this, for anyone, some of your Bibles say for everyone who asks, receives, the one who seeks will find, the one who will knock, the door will be open uh, to them. Now I've heard this passage of scripture like spoken out of context so many times, you know, just kind of that name it and claim it deal, you know, like, like anything you ask God for, he has to say yes, because there's a verse in the Bible about it. And you know, it's like, Lord, give me that Tesla, or you know, give me that relationship, or give me that job, or, or get me out of that circumstance. That's not at all what Jesus is talking about here. Jesus is talking to those that are hungry and humble in heart, that are coming to God for God. They're coming to God for like who God is and what God has to offer. And he says, if you come looking for God, if you ask, if you seek, if you knock, he says, you will find that door's gonna be open to you. It's what you see all throughout the scriptures. In Jeremiah 17, God says, if you seek me with all of your heart, he says, you're gonna find me. 
And so, you know, I, I don't know where you're at this morning, but my assumption, this is kind of where I'm hedging my bets, is for any of you this morning that are hungry and humble in heart, that God wants to give you more than a few songs and a sermon and maybe a few people to meet and become friends with. I think God wants to give you himself. He wants to give you more of himself. And so that's what I wanna pray for this morning, that God would just raise our level of expectation. That it wouldn't just be, oh, church feels almost like it did before COVID. Like, what a low bar to set. <laughs> that the desire of our hearts would be to encounter the living God this morning. And so I just wanna to pray a blessing over us as we get ready to open the word. Father, I love you. Jesus, I love you. Holy Spirit, I love you. Thank you for giving us your word and your presence among us this morning. God, thank you for these, these amazing people. Every one of them has the fingerprints of you on them. Like uh, you, you made them, you created them. You have great purposes for their life, dreams for their life, things for them to be a part of, things for me to be a part of. And Lord, in the name of Jesus, I just ask that you would remove any of the clutter, any of the distractions, any of the, the wounds, the baggage, the pain that would keep us from hearing, from seeing, from stepping in to what it is that you have for us this morning. God, this morning, would you just give us um, deep, deep communion, fellowship, friendship with you, and may we do life with one another out of that place of communion with you, fellowship with you. Um, God, would you speak to us through your word this morning? It's in the name of Jesus that I pray and give thanks, and all of God's people say, amen. You know, one of my favorite days of every month is the third Tuesday uh, of every month because it's the day where uh, we get all of our church planters, our pastors from all across the world, we get them online for just a Zoom call and uh, we check in with each other, we, we pray for each other, we share the scriptures and communion together. It's just a moment where we connect. And so you may or may not know this, but uh, one of the things that our church has been really passionate about over the years is is recognizing where God has a call in somebody's life, uh, especially to plant churches and to, to pour into them, to disciple them, to raise them up and to send them out to do that. So we, we have about 44 church planters all over the world in different places, Southeast Asia, Eastern Europe, Western Europe, all across Africa, across North America. And so once a month, we, we all get together on this phone call and we just, we just share, here's what God's doing in our context. Here's what we're seeing. And a couple of weeks ago, I was on uh, that call and one of our brothers who, if you've been a part of Ethos for the last few years, you've probably heard his name. He is, he's leading our church planting efforts in Eastern India. His name is Pius. He's just an amazing man of God. He and his wife and their son and their whole team, just incredible people. They've planted 10 churches in Eastern India. Um, almost all of the churches are in villages that never had a single Christian church before they showed up to begin just evangelizing and bringing the gospel. Just really kind of amazing what God's been doing over there. And so, uh, but the last year, it's been insanely difficult. And I don't say this to like downplay anything that you've experienced or that I've experienced. I know COVID's been a really difficult season for all of us. But whatever the challenge has been in the States, it, it's been even more complicated in, in certain global parts uh, of the world because the financial uh, infrastructure wasn't the same. The political infrastructure wasn't the same. The technological infrastructure wasn't the same. And so some of the burdens that, that we had that were actually relieved a little bit by some of those systemic blessings were, were made really challenging in some of these other parts of the world. And so, you know, every month we'd get on and we'd just hear what God was doing. And India has been a really challenging place, especially when you kind of get outside of some of the major cities. And so 
He's been telling the story of how hard it's been. You know, uh, a lot of our church members over there can't uh, leave their neighborhoods because of the lockdown. Uh, most of our church members over there don't have Wi-Fi in their homes. And so they didn't even have the benefit of doing what we did, you know, over the last year where we were using YouTube and we all like, oh, we hate it. It's like, you know, but we still had that opportunity, right? And so they couldn't see each other's faces. They couldn't get together in, in person. And so uh, last month, Peace was telling us about what they've been doing over the last year. And he says, we broke all of the churches up into little family units of five, five family units. And every Sunday, one person within that group of families would be responsible for calling all of the other families and getting them on a conference call. And for 15 months, we've been doing church on a conference call. And just imagine how hard this would be. Kids running around the room, like, you know, can't see each other's faces. Someone would get on and, and they'd read a scripture. Someone would sing a song. Like, have you ever tried to worship on a conference call? It's hard to worship sometimes in person, but to worship on a conference call, we tried to worship this year via Zoom with our house church. It was terrible, mostly because I was the one leading it, you know, but we tried to sing together and it was hard to sing together, but they, 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 they would read the scriptures together and they would sing together. But he said the majority of their time, they would get the bread and they would get the wine and they would come together, listen, they would come together around the communion of Jesus. And he said, there's something about that, the simplicity and the power of, of coming around the communion, like as we are, like meeting God in a, really, uh, in a really real place. And in the midst of all the hardship, he said, God showed up in tremendous ways. And in all of the struggle, it's so crazy, is the church over there in the last year, it's been hard, but man, people have flourished, not everybody. But the church is growing in depth and in width. And he's, he's sharing all of these praise reports and, and uh, all of us were listening going, man, how in the world did that happen? And it happened in this place of, of sweet, like real fellowship, communion, intimacy with Jesus. And there's so much stuff that, that I think we've, we've learned over the last year, things that we're beginning to learn. Some of the things that we've learned about our church in the last year have been like really encouraging. And to be really honest, some of the things we've learned have been really discouraging, really hard. And like we see it, we go, man, God, what are you doing? Where are you, where are you trying to grow us in this place? And one of, the, one of the areas where we just go, man, we think God's trying to grow us. We think there's some ground to take. Is we believe that God is inviting us as a community to really learn what it means, what it looks like to experience more intimacy with Jesus, more communion with Jesus, more fellowship with Jesus when we find ourselves in small circles together. You know, for some of you, that's your house churches. For some of you, it's your small groups. For some of you, it's your friend group. For some of you, it's a discipleship group. But we believe that there is something that happens when everyday, ordinary people, just like you and I, come around the body of Jesus, the blood of Jesus, the grace of Jesus, the presence of Jesus, and we ask Jesus to do what only Jesus can do. I think there's that desire in us. I've heard that like in so many different people in our church, but I think sometimes that desire can, can be frustrating because we go, okay, we long to do that, but how, how do we begin to experience like real intimate fellowship, real intimate, real intimate communion with Jesus in the context of the circle that he's already given us? So here's what we're gonna do this morning. Um, and I wanna spend just a little bit teaching into this going, what's a framework like, what's a framework that we can hold on to? This isn't a formula. It's not if you do this and this and this, it always works out this way. But what's a framework for understanding the way in which ordinary people like you and I in small communities can begin to commune with Jesus in very real ways? What's a framework for that? And then we're gonna take some time to really practice it together this morning uh, in groups. And then we're gonna send you out this week to go, hey, now go try this 
in the context to which God has already sent you. Maybe it's with your coworkers, maybe it's with your house church, maybe it's with your family, maybe it's with your friend group. So if you take notes, whether physically or in your phone, or maybe you just have an amazing memory and you just wanna impress these things on your mind and your heart, I wanna kind of give you five pictures this morning that gives us a framework for what it looks like to enjoy some of what our brothers and sisters in India have experienced over the last years they've communed with Jesus. And the first thing is this, if, if you really wanna commune with Jesus more deeply, Number one, it begins with us recognizing the presence of Jesus among us. It begins with us like acknowledging, recognizing that, that we're not just here when we gather to, to sing to Jesus or to talk about Jesus or to think about Jesus or to study Jesus, but we actually come into this place and we recognize that Jesus is among us. The risen King Jesus, like he's, he's here, like, like in our midst. I don't know who you came to connect with this morning, what you came expecting. But what you see in the scriptures is the, the benchmark of the people of God is the presence of Jesus. I give you a lot of scriptures into this. I'll just give you a few. I love Exodus 33. Moses is having this conversation with God and God is getting ready to send the Israelites into the promised land, this land that he had promised. He's getting ready to send them there. But because of their rebellion, he says, listen, I'm gonna give you the land. I'm gonna give you protection. I'm gonna provide for all of your needs. He says, but you're no longer gonna have intimacy with me. You're not gonna have my presence when you go there because you forfeited that because of your choices. It's a scary moment. And Moses gets down on his knees. He begins to plead with God. And maybe you remember this conversation in Exodus 33. But Moses says, please don't give us the promised land. Please don't provide for our needs. Please don't even protect us from harm's way if you're not gonna give us your presence. And this is the statement that just grabs me out of Exodus 33 because Moses says, what else on planet earth would distinguish us from everybody else if we don't have your presence? So guys, here's the mark. Here's the hallmark of the people of God. It's not your behavior. It's not just your belief system. It's not just your ability to manage your old sins and to be a little nicer than you used to be and to, and to speak a little better than you used to speak and to sleep with less people and drink less and, and, and lie less, although all those things are good. That's not what marks the people of God. What marks the people of God is that we are a people marked by the manifest presence of Jesus. That when people are around you, they experience the aroma of Christ. When they're among us, they go, man, the sermon was fine, the worship was fine, the people were fine. There was someone else there. There's something else there. It's what marks us. It's the presence of God. You see this all through the scriptures. It's what Jesus says in Matthew 18. Wherever two or three are gathered in my name, there I am also. One of his parting words to the disciples before he returned to heaven he made all of these big promises and he looked at them, but my favorite promises, he says, but I will be with you always to the very end of the age. I'm not gonna abandon you, leave you out there. I'm not setting you out on your own. I'm not just giving you a book and some rules. He says, I'm gonna stay with you in my very presence. First Corinthians chapter six, he says, don't you know that you, the church, you are the dwelling place of God. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. You are the residing place. Like, it's what the psalmist says, that the Lord sits enthroned on the praises of God's people, that there's something that happens when we come together in small communities. There's something that happens when we come together in larger environments like this, where we're not just here to consume sermons and songs and make friends and to try a little bit harder, but we're here to experience and to encounter the manifest presence of God. 
And part of what was happening in India, part of what happens when we get in smaller groups, part of the way that we commune with the Lord is there's this thing that begins to turn in us where we go, hey, whether there's two or three of us around a cell phone, whether there's a few of us around a coffee table with the Bible open, whether there's a couple of hundred of us in a bar on a Sunday morning, wherever we come together with humble, hungry, open hearts, the presence of Jesus is there. So we see in the book of Revelation that Jesus is walking amongst the churches. He's here, and I don't know who you came here expecting to meet this morning, but I'm curious, how many of us like walked through the archway of the door and went, man, I think I'm going to get touched by Christ. See, the problem with so much of Western Christianity these days is not that we expect too much, it's that we expect far too little. I don't know if you've ever been to a fundraising dinner of any sort, Occasionally I get invited, which is a joke because I don't have any money to give, but I'll get invited to these fundraising dinners. And one of the things that will happen at these fundraising dinners is there's always like some special guest. Typically it's someone that does have a lot of money. You know, it's typically somebody that's kind of important. And at these fundraising dinners, what will happen is whoever's hosting the dinner, they'll start by having all of the guests of honor just stand up, hey, here's who's here, here's who's here, here's who's here, here's who's here. And everybody would cheer and everybody would celebrate. Uh, can you just imagine, like, if every time you came into your home with a group of other believers, every time you showed up around that coffee table with a group of believers, every time you walked into this, sun, uh, into this space on a Sunday with a group of believers, there was just this eruption of praise because we knew who was with us. See, communion, it, it begins with this recognition that the presence of God is among us. But kind of the second piece of this framework is it's not just a recognition that the presence of God is among us. The second thing that begins to happen as we, we commune with Jesus is we begin to remember all of our sins and all of our shortcomings, which maybe that's not where you expected this to go. But something happens when, when, when Jesus like walks into the room, when you're really aware of his, his goodness, you actually become aware of your insufficiency. When you see his holiness, you see your unholiness. When you see his rightness, you see your lack of rightness. Something begins to kind of stir up in us. And I'm not just talking about like old sin. I'm talking about recent sin. The ways, the ways that we sin against the Lord, like something happens. I don't know if you've ever had a friend that is just so good that when they come into the room, you instantly feel less than. And I know that's not a good thing, but we're humans. You know, maybe it's at work and like you feel great about who you are at work until that other guy walks into the boardroom or until that other woman walks into the boardroom and all of a sudden you don't feel so great anymore. Or maybe you feel like you're just killing it as a mom and then you get on Instagram and it's like, I'm the worst mom ever. Or, or, or maybe you feel like you're just doing so great in life or so great in faith and somebody better than you walks in and we've all had this experience, right? And all of a sudden you go, man, I, I just don't feel as good as I used to. Have you ever had that happen with your faith? Like you feel like you're, you're kind of crushing it and then somebody comes into the picture who's, who's purer than you, kinder than you, more wonderful than you. I think about one of my good friends, a guy named KP. I don't get to see him very often, but every time I'm around him, he walks in the room and he's so pure and he's so righteous and he's so kind. I'm like, I'm not even sure I'm a Christian. You know, like he's just in the room. I'm like, you're so much better than me. Like, I'm not even sure we're playing the same sport. You know, it's like, he's so good. And I go, this is what happens when our awareness of the presence of Jesus, when we begin to recognize that he's among us, before we experience grace, before we experience mercy, before we experience that touch of God, a lot of times we experience what Peter experienced in Luke chapter five. He's in the fishing boat with Jesus. Maybe you remember this. 
And up until that point, he'd been really familiar with Jesus, but it wasn't until that moment in Luke chapter five where something shifts and all of a sudden he begins to see Jesus for who he really is. And Peter's first response is not, oh man, this is awesome. I've got the son of God in my boat. How do I leverage this for my own good? He recognizes who's in his boat and he falls on his knees and he says, Jesus, you've got to get away from me. I'm a sinful man. You have no idea who I am. You have no idea who I am. So you see with the prophet Isaiah, when he finds himself in the presence of God, you remember what he says? He says, woe to me. <laughs> he says, I'm a man of unclean lips and I come from a family that is jacked up and our whole nation is even worse. Like, Lord, you've got to do something to heal me. Like, I don't even belong to be in your presence. Guys, this is why it's so confusing to me anytime I come across an arrogant Christian. I think it should be fundamentally impossible to be an arrogant Christian because as we draw near to Jesus, it's not just that we see him for who he is, but we begin to see ourselves for who we are. And this intimate communion, this intimate communion, it begins with this recognition that he's near. And this simultaneous remembrance that here's who we are and here's what we've been doing and we don't deserve for him to be near. Kind of third picture in this framework. It's not just that we recognize his nearness or remember our shortcomings. Number three, it's that we know how to return to the Father's house despite everything we've done to mess our lives up. And we return to the Father's house. In other words, we know what to do with our sinfulness. We know what to do with our mess. You know, it's, it's interesting. We live in a cultural moment where our culture doesn't like to talk about sin. And when it does talk about sin, it doesn't know what to do with it. Our culture would be quick to say, you know, there's really no such thing as sin. That's just a oppressive framework that's been put on you. Or maybe our, our culture would say, hey, you hide your sin or you deny your sin or you celebrate your sin. It's your right to do that. But the scriptures speak of sin in a totally different way. The scriptures speak of sin as this thing that overtakes you. Yesterday, I was just reading through Proverbs and I get to Proverbs chapter five, verses 22 and 23. And I was reading it in the message translation by Eugene Peterson. I don't know if you ever read through that translation of the Bible, but in Proverbs chapter five, verses 22 through 23, he says, our sin is like a shadow that will always overtake us. It's like stage one cancer that remains hidden for a time. And you can deny it for a season, but it grows and it grows and it grows and it grows and it grows. And the question is, what do you do? What do you do with this reality? What do you do with this remembrance of who you are? Not just in the distant past, but today, yesterday. What do you do with it? And this framework for communion, this framework for intimacy, it's not just recognizing that Jesus is among us and that we're sinners who don't deserve that. What, what we begin to see is there's this, this call of followers of Jesus. We, we return to the Father's house. We go back into the Father's presence. We drag our sin like out into the light and we allow God to do what only God can do with it. You know, one of my favorite moments in all the scriptures, if I had to just choose one chapter out of the Bible, I'm not sure if that's heresy or not, but if, 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 if somebody said, you've just gotta pick one chapter, rest of your life, it's the only thing you can think about, for me, it would be Luke chapter 15. In Luke chapter 15, for me, it's like one of those Mount Everest moments where, where Jesus is looking out at this group of brokenhearted people, and he begins to tell them these stories of what God is like, and one of the stories that he tells is the story of the prodigal son. And if you don't remember anything else about the story, it's a story of a guy that took his father's kindness and squandered it in ways that only a few of you could imagine. And in the midst of his squandering, uh, I love it, it says he comes to his senses 
And he begins to return where? Somebody help me out. He returns to the father's house. And I love this. He returns to the father's house with broken theology. He returns to the father's house with all sorts of bad ideas. He returns to the father's house having no idea what it is that he's gonna experience when he gets there. But it's one of the only right things that he does in the story. He returns to the father's house. He shows up. He goes back. Hey, like, here's who I am. Here's what I've done. And I go, man, this is, this is the mark of followers of Jesus who are being transformed by the kindness of Jesus. It's not just the recognition of his presence and the remembrance of our sin. It's that as that stuff begins to, to, to burn to the surface, bubble to the surface, we return to the Father's house. I, I'm sure it's why you're here this morning. We show up, go, man, we need God. We need God to do what only God can do. Yesterday, one of my sons, uh, who will remain nameless for the point of this illustration, earlier in the day, he'd been hanging out with some of his friends and one of his friends had asked him a question about me and the answer to that question embarrassed my son. And uh, I'm like, buddy, get ready. When you're a teenager, I will just be a constant embarrassment. That's the way this is getting ready to go. But he was embarrassed by this question that he asked, uh, they asked him. And so he told a lie to his friends. And then the, the rest of the day, every time he would see me, he just felt like heartbroken. He just felt like covered in guilt, like, man, I've, I've lied against my father, you know, and I've dishonored his name. And so, you know, we were around each other most of the day. And so last night before I'm getting ready to tuck him in to bed, he just comes up to me and he just buries his head in my chest and he just starts weeping. He just starts weeping, just like crying. And he starts telling me like everything that he had done. Here's going on. I thought, man, this is the picture. This is the picture of what it means to have intimacy and communion with God. In all of our shame and in all of our fear and in all of our guilt, with all of the unanswered questions, we know where to turn. He came to me, he's crying, and uh, do you know what I did? I just spanked that kid, so no. <laughs> um, he, he, just, he just sat in my lap. And I hugged him and he kept putting his head in my chest and I kept like lifting his eyes. I'm like, no man, I want you to see my eyes. I want you to see how okay we are. Like you don't ever have to think about this moment again, ever. We were completely good. We were completely good. I tucked him into bed and about 20 minutes later, he calls my name. I knew I'd call my name. I come into the dark, <laughs> lay there. <laughs> He's laying there. He said, Dad, I need you to put your face close to my face, put my face down to his face. He said, are we still good? <laughs> I said, yeah. And when you wake up in the morning, we're gonna still be good. And the next day, we're gonna still be good. And we're gonna still be good. See guys, sin does something to not just our hearts, but to our perception of God. I love Colossians chapter one. It says, because of the choices that you've made, because of your sinfulness, because of your evil behavior, in your minds, you've become enemies, enemies with God. It doesn't say in the mind of God, you've become an enemy. It says in your mind, you become an enemy of God because the sin, it doesn't just impact our relationship with ourselves and with one another with the Lord, but it changes the way we see God. And the way communion and intimacy is restored, we recognize that he's near. We remember our sinfulness. We return to the Father's house before we know the way the story is gonna end. And the fourth piece of the framework is we receive the grace and the mercy that we didn't see coming. We receive grace. I love that picture in Luke chapter 15. The son comes home. He had no idea what was awaiting him. 
He certainly did not expect his father to throw a party. He didn't expect his father to like welcome all the way back in. And, and one of the things that I've realized, the longer I've tried to follow Jesus, especially in an American context, is most of us, we are just so woefully uncomfortable with the reality of grace. We're in a performance-driven culture. Like you wanna get what you deserve until what you deserve kind of stinks and then you want it to be a little bit better. But then once you get something better, you wrestle with it because you feel like you didn't earn it. I won't make you raise your hand, but have you ever felt that before? You want the people around you to get what they deserved? But here's one of the things that we constantly discover as we enter into communion with Jesus is that although sin took us further than we expected it to take us, kept us longer than we wanted it to keep us, cost us more than we thought it would cost us, the kindness of God overcomes it in ways we could never imagine. And I just gotta be honest with you, there are times when the kindness of Jesus is so good, it's uncomfortable. And you go, how could it be this good? But this is what happens in that place of communion. Where you go, I don't deserve this. I'm not here on my own merit. I'm not here because of the family I grew up in or my political party. I'm not here because uh, I was so good or served so much or gave so much. I'm here on the kindness of Jesus. That's my ticket in. My future, it's, it's found at the foot of the bloodstained cross in the hope of the empty tomb. It's like, that's the place where we stake all of our future, all of our desires, all of our hopes. And so this is no longer a self-help club. This is not a try a little harder club. This is not the place for good people who are trying to be better people to come together to encourage other good people. Whether we're gathered with a few or gathered with the many, it's the place where we're coming to meet with the living Christ who sees sinful people, who touches sinful people, who cares for sinful people, and who turns sinners into saints. It's one of the remarkable, slanderous realities of the gospel to me, is the types of people that Jesus befriended and brought to the banquet table. And the only people who feel like they deserve to be there are typically the ones who actually haven't met Jesus yet. It's the people who cry out, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, I'm a sinner. I remember when I was nine years old, our, our family moved into this uh, kind of quaint little neighborhood. And the neighborhood was sort of uh, developed in this kind of big square, and in the middle of the square was this wooded area that was all owned by this one guy in the neighborhood. We thought he was like the kingpin, like he was so rich. You know, in hindsight, it was like two acres of woodlands, but we thought it was like a hundred when we were kids, you know, and, and he would let all of the kids in the neighborhood play in his woods, but, but the trick was we had to kind of go by all of these rules, and he had this lengthy list of rules for playing in the woods in the middle of the neighborhood, and so the kids gave him this nickname. We called him Brian the Environmentalist, which, you know, in hindsight, it probably should have just been Brian, the really nice Christian guy that wanted to let kids play in the woods, but we were nine, and, we, you know, we had to mature, so is Brian the environmentalist. And one of the rules that Brian, the environmentalist, had for the woods in the middle of the neighborhood was that we were not allowed to harm or hurt any trees. And at first, like, oh, that seems really simple, really obvious. I mean, I'm nine. How am I going to harm a tree? But as we kept playing in those woods, we were like, man, do you know what would make the woods so much more awesome? Is they had a tree house. 
And I don't know how to build a tree house without harming some trees. And you know, this is a massive plot of land. Surely he'll never find it. And so uh, we thought, let's just build you know, a tree house. This is like one of my first great acts of rebellion. And so me and my buddies, we plotted what we we're gonna do. We all got our little hand saws. We went down into the woods and we sawed down about 12 to 15 of these little trees that were about six or eight inches across. Sawed them down and we built this tree house. It was amazing, we were really proud of it. And so one day we're, we're playing in this house of rebellion. You know, we're there in the woods. And as far as we know, you know, Brian, the environmentalist, didn't know about it. And, and uh, we're enjoying this time. And we hear these footsteps coming through the woods. And, and we realize, oh, we know who's coming. And so we did what any men of God would do. We jumped and we ran and we got home as fast as we could. And we thought, man, I don't know if he, he, if he knows or not. And so we'd see him in the neighborhood and there's just always this kind of like tinge of fear. But uh, there's this kind of moment of inevitability where we had to come kind of face to face. Um, besides just owning the woods in the middle of the neighborhood, Brian would throw this party every year, this huge neighborhood party. He'd host it, he'd invite everybody in the neighborhood to this big potluck. And, and so I remember sitting in our living room and I can still picture Brian the environmentalist walking down the driveway to our house. And I thought, man, this is the moment. Like this is the moment he's found out it's me. He knows what I've done. He's, he is here to arrest me, send me to prison, uh, tell my parents. You know, I was just, I was thinking like a nine-year-old, I was scared to death. And so he knocks on the door and he hands me this flyer. He said, hey, the neighborhood party's coming up in a few weeks and here's what your parents need to know. I'd love for you guys to come. And I don't know if you've ever had one of these moments where somebody's kindness in the face of your rebellion just begins to melt. Have you ever had this happen before? It was like liquid guilt just began to run from head to toe. Like I just felt like I'm the worst human on the earth. I cut down this dude's trees. And here he is inviting me to this party. And so I had this moment of kind of insane courage and he's getting ready to leave. And I'm like, hey, I just have to ask you something. Did you know that I'm the one that cut down the trees? He said, yeah, I said I knew it was you. Eventually he would walk me into the woods and have me count all of the rings of every tree. And that's another story for another day. But he said, yeah, he said, I, I knew it was you. And I said, I said, why in the world are you inviting our family to the party still? And I'll never forget what he said. He says, because a neighborhood party is not a neighborhood party unless the whole neighborhood's there. And it was like one of the first, like just clear pictures I got of the, of the gospel. I went that, that God, he, he, knows, there, there, he knows everything about you. He knows everything you've ever done, everything you've ever thought, everything you have ever said. And he draws near to you and that stuff bubbles up. And we bring it into the Father's house. We go, man, we don't, we don't know what to do with it. And he begins to lavish grace. He begins to invite you back to the party. He brings you back to the dinner table because he knows that the Father's house is not the same unless you're a part of it. See, this is what it looks like to, to commune with Jesus. We, we come together, whether it's in small groups or large groups, and we recognize the tangible presence of God. We remember who we actually are in the presence of God. We return to the Father's house despite who we are, and it's there in that place that we receive grace, but it doesn't stop there. One last thing is it's there in the midst of all of that, from that space that we renew. We renew our covenantal vows with the Lord. We, we, we renew our, our sense of purpose. We renew this sense of like, hey, here's who you've made us to be. And here's where the, the scandal of the gospel gets so scandalous to me. It's not just that Jesus is nice enough to forgive you. See, some of you, that's, that's hard to believe, but maybe you've gotten there. You go, okay, Jesus can forgive me. But the gospel is so much better than that. It's not just that he wants to forgive you. 
It's that he wants to invite you into the fullness of participation to use you, to, to send you, to bless you. Like he wants to use you as a trophy of his kindness and his grace for other people. Then the kingdom of God, nobody's designed to sit on the sidelines. Nobody's designed to observe. Nobody's designed to just kind of sit around and cheer others on. But that the Lord knows the plans he has for you, the dreams he has for you, the things he's destined for you. And as you draw near to him, he begins to call out the identity that he sowed into your life long before you were ever born. And in that place of intimate communion. And you begin to say, hey, this is who you are. You're not just a churchgoer. You're not just a moral person. You're not just a nice guy. You're not just a nice woman. You have the fingerprints of heaven on you. And God has immeasurably more for you than you could ask or imagine. And it's there in this place of communion that we are launched into this, sent into this. You know, in my personal time with the Lord over the last several months, I've, I've been in the Sermon on the Mount, which is one of my favorite places in scripture. It's Jesus's manifesto on what it looks like to live in the kingdom of God under his rule and his leadership right here and now. It's a beautiful picture. Like, here's what it looks like to be citizens of another place in the midst of all of the, the moments we find ourselves in right here and now. And, and Jesus, you have to understand this, when he's preaching in the scriptures, he is so rarely preaching in auditoriums. He's so rarely preaching in formal settings that just kind of like giving out, you know, some, some principles. Jesus would preach along the roadsides. He'd preach in the dirt. He'd preach in the fields. He'd preach in the boat. He'd preach around the campfire. He'd preach in the real context of real moments. And so you can only understand the Sermon on the Mount when you understand the environment that it was in. If you go back to Matthew chapter four, there's this moment where all of these people with really messy, complicated lives are coming to Jesus and they're being healed of sickness, they're being forgiven of sin, they're being delivered from demonic oppression. People whose marriages hadn't worked, who hadn't been able to beat addiction on their own. People who are wrestling with religiosity, who couldn't seem to be spiritual enough or good enough or kind enough. And they come to Jesus and they're touched by God. And it's from that place, surrounded by all of these former addicts, all of these former nobodies, these people that don't know how to make sense of which way is up and which way is down, who didn't fit into the religious mold of the day, that Jesus looks at them and he says, blessed are you. And he starts going down that list. Blessed are you when you're spiritually bankrupt. Blessed when you're grieving that marriage that didn't work. Blessed are you. And he's just going, blessed, 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 blessed. And you can imagine almost every person in the crowd going like, wait, really, me, us? And then he gets to this scandalous moment in Matthew chapter five, right after he gets done blessing them. And he says, and you, you're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. You're the city on the hill that can't be hidden. You're the preservative in a culture that is rotting from the inside out. You are my trophies of grace. You are the ones that I'm proud of, that I'm delighted in. And you can just imagine them walking out of there going, whoa. Not only is there a place for us in the family of God, but there's a mission for us in the family of God. And as you come into communion with Jesus, it's not just that we see his nearness. It's not just that we see our sin. It's not just that we get our grace, get his grace. It's that we renew our sense of covenantal commitment. And we say, God, you have put us here for a purpose. What do you want us to do today? One of my favorite moments in my life, if I had to boil it down to one day that I could just go live over and over and over again, it'd be April 29th, 2005. It's the day that I stood at the altar with Sydney and we got married and professed our love to each other, made promises that we thought, I mean, looking back on it, I'm like, we had no idea what we were saying, no idea what we were doing. 
But we were there at the altar and we were making this promise. And, and I've often thought, man, Lord, if I could go back and experience one day over and over and over and over again, I would get married over and over and over. Always to her, you know, but I, 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 I'd get married because there's something about standing with someone and going, hey, no matter what comes, we're in this together. 10 years into our marriage, I thought, man, we've got to renew this. We, we, we've got to like re-up, you know, we've got, to, we've got to be reminded of why we're in this. And so I rented out the church that we got married in and told all of our friends and families, big surprise. And we show up at this chapel and there's a few hundred people there and our bridesmaids and our groomsmen. And uh, we, we'd all had a little bit of life under us at this point. But we stood at the altar again and said, hey, I still choose you. I'm still here. And the point of this renewal is not just to exist another 40 years, it's to say like, why did God put us on earth? And what we've learned about love is love, it's not just a decision, it's not just that one time thing you did, it's not just that moment, it's, it's this choice. You just, you just keep waking up going, hey, I still choose you. You wake up in the morning, it's like, I'm so angry at you, I still choose you, I'm still with you. I don't understand you, I, I still choose you. It's this commitment to say, I'm gonna to continue to fall in love with you over and over and over, all of the versions of you that you're gonna become. I'm gonna fall in love with you again. And I realize that life in the kingdom of God, when you draw close into this place of intimate communion, Jesus never changes, but he deals with all of our changes. And he keeps calling us back into this place of renewal, back into this place of covenant, back into this place of commitment, and he sends us back out to be salt and light, to be a blessing. Because he knows there are people in your workplaces, in your neighborhoods, in your family, who you will be the only Bible they will ever read. Your life, your demeanor, your character, your language. And the Lord sends you out to love and to bless and to be a beacon of who he is. And see what was happening in our churches in India over the last year is ordinary people just like you and I, they'd, they'd get around a little phone on a Sunday morning and someone would sing a song and someone would read a scripture and then they would get out that bread and they would get out that cup and they'd go, okay, hey, Christ, he's with us here. <laughs> he's among us. And they'd confess their sins. They'd remember who they were and they'd return to the Lord over and over and over and they'd receive his grace. And then they'd look around that little table and they'd go, hey, who are you gonna love this week? And who are you gonna encourage this week? And who are you gonna serve this week? Okay, let's be accountable to that. And they'd go out and the Lord added to their number daily. Those are being saved. Guys, I believe God has so much for us. But the so much isn't gonna come because we try harder, because we organize better, because we, we come up with new strategy, although those things are fine. The goodness of God is found in the presence of God when people know how to acknowledge the nearness of God and respond in faith to that. And it's something that we do every week when we come into this space. It's something that you have the ability to do tomorrow with your friend group or with your family or with your house church, or with your discipleship group, to get around the bread, to get around the cup and to say, hey, Jesus, would you do it all you can do? So here's what I wanna invite us to do this morning. I wanna invite you to get out uh, the, the communion uh, that you hopefully had when you came in this morning. And you know, one of the questions that we, people keep asking is, hey, when are we gonna go back to the stuff that tastes good? Um, <laughs> if you're new to Ethos, you're like, what's he talking about? Trust me, one day you'll find our, our communion used to taste amazing pre-COVID. Um, it'll be back. 
But you understand why it's not back yet, right? Can I just get an amen? Like, you understand why we're still doing this? Okay. Um, but hey, Christ is still in this. He's still in this. And I just wanna practice what it is that we've been talking about. I wanna invite you to just close your eyes. And I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna pray some short prayers. And if, if you feel in agreement with me, this is, I'm not making anybody do this, but if you're a follower of Jesus and you feel in agreement with, with what I'm gonna say, I just encourage you, in your own words, you can, you can respond, you can pray back what I've just prayed out loud or under your breath, it doesn't matter. We're just, gonna, we're just gonna take some moment, we're gonna commune with Jesus um, together, okay? So just close your eyes. Just take a few seconds to still your heart. I'm just gonna pray some short things. You can respond by praying them if you want. Uh, Jesus, would you help us to recognize that you are actually here with us today? Help us to recognize that you see everything we're thinking, everything we're feeling, everything we've done, that you're here among us. Help us in our hearts to have that recognition of your presence in the gathered body. Jesus, right now as we sit in your presence, we, we remember our sinfulness and we just acknowledge that in no way do we think we're worthy of a visitation from you, much less a habitation. Uh, Lord, we just acknowledge our, our sin this week, the ways that we've gossiped about friends, the way that we've slandered others, the way that we've had evil thoughts, the way that we have coveted and longed for possessions instead of being content the way that we have been greedy or slanderous, the way that we have lusted, the way that we have stewarded our sexuality in ways that don't bring you honor and glory. God, we recognize that we've used your name in vain, that we have chased other gods, and the thought that you would come amongst such a distracted, half-hearted group of people like us is amazing, but Lord, we just recognize, you know, the words of Psalm 139, we just pray that, Lord, you would search our hearts, that you would test us, that you would know our anxious thoughts, that you'd see if there's any offensive ways in us and that you'd lead us in the way everlasting. So God, we, we recognize your nearness. We remember our sinfulness. And Jesus, in this moment, we just, we return to you. If it's true of you, just under your breath or even out loud, you can just say, Jesus, I return to you. I come back to you. I return to you, Jesus. With all of the mess, I, I drag it into the light. And Jesus, we just receive your grace. Forgive us, Jesus. And in the same breath, thank you for your forgiveness, Jesus. Thank you for your mercy. God, I pray that that grace would just trickle down from our minds into our hearts. It would begin to flow and animate every part of our bodies and our lives and that we would live as people marked by grace. And then God, we ask that you would renew our baptismal, our covenantal vows with you to live as salt and light right here and right now. So I just invite you to repeat these words out loud after me. We are loved by God. We are loved by God. 
And we are being sent by God to show our city and to tell our city that they are loved by God too. I'm just gonna renew this again. Um, we are loved by God, come on. We are being sent by God to show our city and to tell our city that they are loved by God too. Jesus, we thank you. Have you opened this door that you have made this a reality? It's in your name we pray and give thanks, amen.